We start our Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Tonight I'm going to talk about the five mental faculties. In my last two talks, I spoke about the five aggregates. As you know, the aggregates of materiality, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And as you have seen, we can further reduce these aggregates into two categories. One is material, phenomena or processes and they belong to the aggregate of materiality and the other one are mental phenomena mental processes and for the mental processes we have the four aggregates of perception feeling, mental formations and consciousness and as we have seen in the aggregate of materiality, we are basically concerned with the four primary material elements. So these five aggregates are what uh, constitute a so-called person, or a being, an animal, a man, a woman, and so on. And so in our meditation practice, when we are observing what is happening in our body and mind, basically we are observing these five aggregates, seeing them uh, in their interplay, watching this play of the aggregates. And in order to observe what is happening in the body and the mind, how these aggregates are manifested, how we uh, experience them. It is helpful to cultivate certain qualities which will help us in this endeavor to clearly uh, see and understand these mental and physical processes. And so there are five qualities, five um, mental factors which are very helpful and supportive in our meditation practice. And these five factors are known as the five mental faculties. So these five mental faculties, they are, the first is sata, that's faith 
or confidence or trust. The second one is virya. This means effort, energy, endurance. The third one is sati. This is mindfulness, awareness. Then the fourth one is samadhi. This means concentration or the one-pointedness of the mind. And the fifth of these mental factors, mental faculties, is panya. Panya stands for insight, understanding, knowledge or wisdom. So tonight we will have a look at these five mental faculties. The first one is Sada. That's the Pali word. And the Pali word Sada refers to different aspects of what we commonly translate as faith, or confidence, and trust. In Buddhism, sada means uh, confidence, trust, or faith in, in the Triple Gem, which means the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So placing one's faith or trust in the Buddha as the person who knows, that's the meaning of the word, Buddha or Buddha, the one who knows. The Buddha uh, fully knows things as they are, or he awakened to the truth of things. And as the Buddha said, we all have this um, potential to see things as they truly are. We all can become awakened or one who knows. Placing faith in the Dhamma means placing faith in that what actually exists. The word Dhamma also denoting everything that exists or the laws of nature, the laws in the universe. And because the teaching of the Buddha basically aims at understanding nature or the laws of nature, that's why his teaching has become known as Dhamma. And the third aspect is placing faith and trust in the Sangha. The Sangha as those who follow the Buddha's teaching or put into practice the advice and instructions given by the Buddha. This is in the most general sense. Sometimes the word Sangha is used in a more limited way, referring to the ordained Sangha, those who have become nuns or monks. 
in the Buddhist tradition. Another aspect of uh, faith or the object of faith and trust is to have a basic faith into the law of cause and effect, which is an aspect of the Dhamma. Realizing the Dhamma, the laws in nature, uh, one will come to understand that things happen on the basis on this law of cause and effect, conditioned existence, that nothing simply appears out of the blue without any causes and conditions. And when we engage in meditation practice, it is also important that one has confidence or faith into the technique of meditation or in the method of a particular meditation practice. Because only when there is some trust, some confidence in the method uh, of meditation practice will one put some effort into the practice or earnestly try it out. If one has no faith, no trust in to the method, then it's very difficult because one does not practice wholeheartedly and that uh, leads to doubts and the mind is wavering. As I, have men- as I have mentioned in my talk about the five hindrances uh, in talking about doubts, skeptical doubts, I mentioned that even Mahasi Sayadaw had doubts about this particular meditation practice when he first encountered it while practicing uh, with the teacher. But Mahasi Sayadaw finally could put away his doubts and give himself wholeheartedly into the hands of his teacher and practice according to his teacher's instructions. And um, based on then on his personal experience, he could see that this practice was helpful and beneficial. And so based on his personal experience, his doubts simply vanished and disappeared. So especially when we engage in meditation practice, an initial faith or trust is needed, which means an openness of the heart to try out a particular uh, practice. Or one needs a certain willingness to engage in this practice, this willingness to maybe engage in something new or unusual or a bit different uh, from what one was used to. Sometimes this initial uh, trust or confidence is not there and so maybe then uh, one needs some inspiration from others. It can either be that one 
get some inspiration from the teacher because uh, one regards this teacher as a person with integrity or recognizes some good, uh, admirable uh, qualities and so then is inspired that maybe through this practice one is also able uh, to develop such wholesome good qualities. Sometimes the inspiration comes from friends who have been to a meditation retreat and are very enthusiastic about the meditation practice and so inspired by what they tell you and then one uh, gains some initial faith or confidence. Sometimes this inspiration can come from books, reading books about Buddhism or uh, meditation practice. And as it makes sense and seems to be logical, one is inspired to also engage in this uh, practice. Sometimes a little bit more than simple inspiration is needed and that means that one needs encouragement to engage uh, in meditation practice. Like, uh, like it was for my, one of my brothers. It was a number of years ago when he faced a major crisis in his life. And so he got into depression and was in a very bad shape. And so he had to go and see a psychotherapist. And at that time, I was in Burma. And at that time, communication to and from Burma was rather difficult and also very unreliable. At that time, no emails yet, no internet yet. So basically my contact to my family was limited to letters, snail mail. And even letters uh, sometimes did not arrive in both ways. But anyway, I got this letter from my brother and another one from my parents in which he mentioned uh, in what state he was and difficulties and so finally uh, he decided to quit his job that was one area where he faced big problems and that he would split up with his girlfriend another uh, area of um, conflict and so having decided that he would quit his job, um, split up with his girlfriend, he decided that he wanted to go traveling around the world, that he would also travel to Asia. And so he mentioned that if he would come to Asia, he could come to Burma and visit me. And so I wrote a letter back to him and mentioned that he would be very welcome to see me in Burma to visit me 
And I also mentioned to him that if he wanted, he could even come and meditate. But I did not really think that he would consider to take up meditation because about uh, three years before that, he came to Burma with that girlfriend and we hired a car and were driving to all the places of interest and uh, seeing the nice temples and pagodas. And both of them had no interest in Buddhism. Both of them were not interested in the practice of meditation. They loved Burma, beautiful scenery, nice temples, glitter, uh, golden pagodas glittering in the sun. And so, as they were not interested in Buddhism or meditation at all, I did not tell them anything about Buddhism or meditation practice. I didn't want to impose anything on them. And so then, when I wrote this letter to my brother that he would also be welcome to practice meditation, I didn't really think that he would consider it, but somehow I just thought I'd like to mention it to him, to offer him this opportunity. And after another little while, I got another letter from him in which he said, that uh, he decided to come to Burma and that he decided to come and practice meditation for one month. <laughs> and he further wrote that after getting my letter, offering him this opportunity, he mentioned it to his psychotherapist. And apparently this uh, psychotherapist thought that would be a good thing to do, and so gave him encouragement to actually do it. And with the encouragement of his psychotherapist, then my brother decided to do it. And so then, later he came, he had never practiced meditation before, and he stayed for the whole month. It was not easy, but it was very good for him, very beneficial for him. With some people having already some faith and confidence, then when they engage in meditation practice, at a certain stage in their practice, when the meditator is experiencing a lot of so-called good experiences, when the mind becomes really bright and concentration is good, uh, rapture is arising, and so on, in that period of practice, then usually faith, uh, sada becomes also very, very strong. Sometimes it's overboarding a bit and becomes too strong. And so when, the, when faith sada becomes too strong, then the meditator uh, starts thinking of how can I get 
uh, my friend to practice meditation? Or what can I do to get my parents and to practice meditation? Because this is such a fantastic thing to do. Uh, there's nothing better out in this world, nothing um, to make the mind clearer and happier. And so then having uh, sada too strong, meditators get carried away by this strong sada and just think about how they could, their friends, their families, uh, to get practice meditation. Or it can happen that meditators give long and inspiring Dhamma talks to their friends and family. And so then in a, sit- a sitting meditation can go by in no time and they realize, oh, <laughs> one hour gone just giving a Dhamma talk to my friends. <laughs> In other meditators, faith, sada, can be very weak or uh, not present at all. And in this case, the person's heart is closed. There is no openness or no willingness uh, to engage in this practice or engage in a new approach of meditation practice. Or it also happens uh, when there is no personal and direct experience. And so then the meditator's mind starts to have doubts, starts to waver. The best remedy uh, for that is uh, to give oneself fully into the practice, like to um, open up and have some devotion. And in German, the word for devotion is a very nice word. Um, It's hingabe, and this means like to give yourself fully or to immerse yourself completely. And so with that kind of devotion, to give yourself fully into your practice, then with that a softening and an opening of the heart could take place and with that um, some personal uh, direct experience can happen. Sometimes sada can become what is called blind faith. People become credulous, just blindly accepting what others have told, blindly believing what somebody else has said, blindly believing what is written in the books. And so then Uh, not checking whether this is true or not. 
at the time of the Buddha, there were uh, a group of pin, group of people known as the Kalamas, and they had been visited by various ascetics, wandering priests, hermits, all expounding a different teaching or doctrine. And so the Kalamas got very confused. They didn't know any longer what to believe or what criteria they should apply um, to choose any of these doctrines. And so one day when the Buddha came through that place, uh, people approached the Buddha and told him that so many ascetics and hermits and wandering priests uh, told them different doctrines. And so they were perplexed and confused what to believe. And so they asked the Buddha for some advice and guidelines. And the Buddha, because he was the Buddha, being very understanding and compassionate, he said, yes, uh, it's understandable that you are confused and perplexed. You know, the Buddha could have simply said, oh well, you know, all these different ascetics and hermits, they are completely wrong. Don't believe them. Only what I teach is the right thing. But the Buddha didn't say that. He said, yes, I understand that you are confused and perplexed. And so then the answer uh, that he gave to these uh, people was, he said, do not simply believe what you hear just because you have heard it for a long time. And do not follow tradition blindly, merely because it has been practiced in that way by many generations. He said, do not be quick to listen to rumors. And do not confirm anything just because it confirms to your scriptures. And do not be fooled by outer appearances. And he even said, "Do not be convinced out of any. Do not be convinced of anything out of respect for your spiritual teacher." But he said that the people should check for themselves whether something was beneficial or not. And so, if anything proves to be uh, unwholesome, leading to more greed, leading to more anger, leading to more delusion, then they should re uh, reject such a teaching. Because greed, anger and uh, delusion, they do not... Uh, exist only in a certain religion or belief. They are um, generally condemned or regarded as unwholesome or not beneficial qualities. And so 
that should be avoided. On the other hand, the Buddha said, if anything, when it's practice, leads to less greed, to less anger and to less delusion, then that should be practiced. Then that uh, should be uh, further cultivated. Because anything that leads to greater wisdom, to more compassion and kindness are qualities that are generally uh, regarded as good, wholesome and beneficial. So this should be the criteria when confronted with a teaching or another doctrine. Then the second uh, quality or mental faculty is virya. And this is effort or energy or endurance. It's also uh, perseverance or not giving up or that kind of energy that is needed to overcome difficulties. And I've noticed that Asians and Westerners have quite a different attitude to virya or effort. Usually Westerners are very good in striving and putting in a lot of effort into their practice coming from a materialistic society where one has to strive and be good and outdo others. So Westerners usually are very good in striving. Asians, on the other hand, are much more relaxed. And so they need much more uh, encouragement to strive more or to put effort into the practice than Westerners. Like uh, in Burma, I have noticed that Burmese meditators are much more relaxed in their practice. So they need uh, the teacher telling them to put more effort into the practice, to strive more, and so on. It's like, you know, they need the stick of the teacher. However, with Westerners, such an approach uh, is not uh, appropriate in most of the cases because Westerners, they come with an almost inborn uh, tendency to strive, to strive too hard or to make an inappropriate uh, effort. So effort... You know, there is a need for effort to put energy into this practice, to actually engage uh, in meditation practice. But the stress must be on 
having one's effort to be appropriate or uh, according to the given uh, circumstances. And so one needs to discern whether one needs to relax more or whether one needs to arouse a little bit of more effort or energy in one's practice. So it's not all the time uh, that kind of effort uh, by which one is gritting one's teeth and clenching one's fist. At one time, the Venerable Sona was uh, exerting too much effort in his practice and not realizing that he was putting too much effort into his practice, he became very restless and um, practice didn't go very well. And the Buddha, knowing what was happening to Venerable Sona, out of compassion, he went to him and um, talked to him. And Venerable Sona had been a musician before he became a, a monk. And so the Buddha asked him, you know, Sona, when you were a musician and playing the lute, when the strings of your lute were too tight, did they produce a nice and harmonious sound? And Venerable Sona said, no. When they were too tight, they did not produce a nice and harmonious sound. And then the Buddha asked, and when the strings were too loose, did those strings produce a nice and harmonious sound? And again, Venerable Sona said, no. When the strings were too loose, they did not produce a very nice and harmonious sound. And he continued to say, only when the strings of the lute were neither too tight nor too loose did they produce a harmonious and nice sound. And so then the Buddha uh, gave him a talk explaining that also the effort must not be too tight or too loose, but that it must be uh, appropriate neither too tight nor too loose, right uh, in the middle or uh, appropriate to the circumstances. When talking about effort, Virya, it said that there are these four right efforts, or they're also called the four great endeavors. And this kind of effort, or these four kinds of effort, refer to the fact that unwholesome mental states should be overcome, like the effort that can overcome unwholesome mental states. The second kind is that effort which can prevent unwholesome mental states from arising. The third kind of effort is that kind of effort that can maintain 
wholesome mental states which have already arisen. And the fourth kind of effort is the kind of effort that can uh, strengthen or increase wholesome states that have already been uh, there. So overcoming and or preventing unwholesome mental states and maintaining or furthering and increasing wholesome mental states. So our our effort should be directed uh, at this. And last night when we were listening to Joseph's talk, he used this image of the cowherd watching his cows. So at times uh, the cowherd needs to tap Uh, with his stick on the cows to prevent them from going into the fields and destroying the crops. So this is like uh, the cow uh, preventing uh, unwholesome states from arising or uh, overcoming, like when the cows are already in the field. So then the cow herd must be very diligent to drive them out of the field. Or At other times, when wholesome mental states are there, then the cowherd can relax a little bit and just watch the cows from afar, but still making sure that they do not wander off. In regard to virya, or effort, right effort, I want, you to, I want to tell you the story of the three fishes. A fisherman uh, caught three fishes and then threw them into the basket uh, which was placed in his small boat. And these three fishes, they had each a different belief. One fish believed in Virya. So his belief was called Viryavada. And so that fish, believing that everything can be achieved with Virya, with effort, as soon as it was thrown into the basket, the fish tried very hard to jump out of the basket, to escape back into the water. And so the fisherman, sawing this fish, trying very hard to jump out of the basket, took the fish and killed it. The second fish believed in Kama, Kama Vada. And so the second fish was lying in the basket and thinking that its Kama was good enough, that he would escape death. And so it simply didn't do anything but lying there in the basket. The third fish believed in Panya, which is wisdom. So that fish hold Panya Vada. And so that fish was waiting for the right opportunity. When the fisherman reached the shore, then uh, he had to go into the water to pull 
the little boat on shore. And in that moment when he stepped out of the boat into the very shallow water, then the boat was leaning to one side a little bit. And so the uh, fish believing in Panya wisdom, he realized that this was the right opportunity, the right moment to make some effort. So he made an effort and although because the basket was also leaning to the side, uh, he could jump out and escaped into the water. Then Sati is the third of the mental faculties and this is mindfulness or awareness. In his talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, Joseph has already uh, talked a bit about Sati, so I'll be quite short about this. So Sati originally uh, had the meaning of remembering. It's not so much remembering the past, but it rather means to remember, to stay present, to remember, to hold the object in view. Especially when we practice Vipassana meditation, where the objects are not static, but they are moving, uh, changing place, it's very important that with this quality of sati, mindfulness, we hold the object in view, like that our mindfulness follows the object, be that the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, or lifting, pushing and dropping movement of the foot. So this quality of sati uh, has also the quality of not losing the object out of sight. Like um, a tennis player uh, needs always to see where the tennis ball is so that he or she can run to the right place to uh, uh, catch the ball. When sati, mindfulness, is present, then one can see and know the presently arisen objects. And because in Vipassana meditation our objects are changing, objects arise and disappear and new ones uh, arise and disappear. So sati mindfulness needs to be uh, constant without any gaps. So there needs to be mindfulness from moment to moment to see the momentary arisings of different objects. A Vietnamese monk who uh, had lived in France and who had practiced under the guidance of uh, Mahasi Sayadaw. He defined mindfulness in this way. 
and this is French. He called it Prendre soin du présent, which translated into English is taking care of the moment. So this should be the attitude or the quality of sati, to take care of each moment. Like each moment is the most important thing in the world, to be fully present with what is happening in this moment. But then this moment is gone, so then uh, there needs to be the care of the next moment that is there, and the next, and the next, and the next. And so, for mindfulness to become uh, sharp and powerful and penetrating, it needs to be constant or uninterrupted without having gaps, at least for a certain period of time. If mindfulness has many gaps, then uh, mindfulness will stay quite weak and does not have this penetrating power to see things clearly. Other mental faculties can be either too weak or too strong, but mindfulness can never be too strong. So don't worry about your mindfulness becoming too strong. Then we have samadhi, the force of the mental faculties. And this is concentration or one-pointedness. It means when the mind is focused on the object of meditation, when it stays one-pointedly with the meditation object. And concentration can become very good, very strong to the point where the mind gets fully absorbed into one's meditation object. And the image that is used for this um, deep state of concentration is like the flame of a candle in a room where all the windows and doors are closed. So then the flame of that candle is very still. It's not flickering. It's not moving. And so this is the image of a deeply concentrated mind. There is this um, one-pointedness. The mind is not distracted. It's not flickering or moving. So when we talk of concentration, there are different kinds of concentration. In the practice of samatha meditation, calm meditation, when the mind becomes uh, fairly concentrated, then first one reaches so-called excess concentration, and after that one reaches absorption concentration. And this uh, refers to the jhana, deep state uh, of concentration, of one-pointedness of mind. When the mind is fully absorbed 
into the object of meditation. In the practice of vipassana meditation, we do not attain access concentration or absorption concentration, but the concentration that we develop is called momentary concentration because our objects vary. We have different objects and so the mind cannot become uh, absorbed into the object as in Samatha where you only have one object and then the mind is completely absorbed in that object. But in Vipassana meditation as we have changing objects then the mind becomes momentarily concentrated in each moment. could be with the same object for a few moments, but then as another object is arising, then immediately the mind gets fully concentrated on that object, in that moment. And to have um, purification of mind, which is needed in uh, both Samatha and Vipassana meditation practice. So purification of mind means the mind free from the hindrances. And access concentration and concentration, absorption medita- uh, concentration, they have the power to suppress the hindrances. So then, with that purification of mind, is achieved. And it is said that this momentary concentration uh, in Vipassana meditation has the same strength of overcoming the hindrances. So, with momentary concentration, we also can uh, subdue or suppress the hindrances. But in order for this momentary concentration to be uh, strong enough to subdue the hindrances, it needs uh, to be fairly constant. And that's why um, a constant and uninterrupted mindfulness is needed. And so this momentary concentration, it must be flexible, flexible to attend to the different objects that arise. It cannot be uh, rigid or stiff. And lastly, we have panya as one of the mental faculties. Panya, this refers to understanding, insight, knowledge, and wisdom. And we can discern two levels of Panya. One is Lokya Panya, the other one is Lokutara Panya. Lokya Panya means mundane wisdom, 
worldly insight or understanding. And so, in our meditation practice, this Lokya Panya refers to uh, realizing, for example, the specific characteristics of phenomena. Or it refers to understand that three general characteristics of mental and physical phenomena. So realizing the specific characteristics of mental and physical phenomena means, for example, uh, when you observe rising and falling movement, so just to obs- uh, realize movement, uh, the characteristic of movement or motion, or realizing heat or cold or pressure or stiffness or something sticky. So basically it means to realize these specific characteristics of the four primary material elements. And in regard to understanding the three general characteristics, it means to come to see the impermanent nature of phenomena, to see the unsatisfactory nature of phenomena, seeing their unreliability, and seeing their impersonal nature, seeing uh, that one has no absolute control over these conditioned phenomena. So with Lokya Panya, we also refer to the stages, the different stages of insight knowledge. Then Lokutra Panya, this means uh, supramundane understanding or wisdom. And this refers to understanding the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are directly uh, realized when uh, experiencing past knowledge, fruition knowledge. So Lokutra Panya refers to past knowledge, fruition knowledge and enlightenment and Nibbana. And so basically Lokutra Panya refers to the four stages of enlightenment. So for example, let's take the process of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So as we are observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, then at one stage it will will become clear that this rising and falling movement of the abdomen is one process and that the mind observing this movement is actually a different process. So that rising and falling movement and knowing it is not one and the same thing. 
but the meditator then uh, comes to see and understand that there are two different processes involved. The rising and falling movement of the abdomen is a physical process. This happens in the body. And the knowing of it, this happens in the mind. So it's a mental process. And so the meditators come to see that the rising and falling movement is one process, a physical process, and the knowing of it, being aware of it, is a different process, namely a mental process. So then there comes the understanding that in that experience uh, these two uh, processes are involved. So one comes to see physical processes, rupa, and the mental process, nama. So the meditator comes to uh, discern between rupa and nama, or a physical process and a mental process. Or at another time, we might be observing an emotion. Let's say uh, some anger has arisen. And so being mindful that anger has arisen, then we can come to see that the anger is one thing and being mindful of the anger is actually another process. So that the anger and the awareness of it are not one and the same thing, are not one and the same process. And so it becomes clear that the anger is one process, the mind knowing it, the mind being aware of it, is a different process. And so when it comes to see anger is a mental process, nama, and also the knowing of it, the awareness of it, is also a mental process. That's also nama. But uh, one comes to understand that these two mental processes are actually different processes, not one and the same. Or another example. Later on in the practice, when mindfulness has become a bit better and concentration deeper, then it may happen that the meditator is no longer aware of the form of the body or the form or shape of the abdomen as he or she is observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. But still, movement is discerned, the rising and falling movement is clearly seen, and then there is also the awareness of it. And also in this case, the meditator comes to see that the movement is one process, namely a physical one, and the awareness of it is another process, a mental one. So again, discerning between rupa and nama, physical and mental process. 
And so, seeing that there are different uh, processes happening, that there are physical processes, that there are mental processes, and being able to discern between uh, mental and physical phenomena, this means um, that one has um, arrived at the first stage of insight knowledge. This is called the insight knowledge of discerning mental and physical phenomena. And so this would uh, belong to Lokya Panya, mundane uh, insight, mundane uh, wisdom. Then another kind of experience is when, for example, when we hear a sound. So when some sound uh, arises, a train uh, passing by, for example, then because of that sound, we hear it. So then uh, hearing consciousness arises and we can hear the sound. If no train passes by and if no sound arises, then there is also no hearing uh, taking place. So no hearing consciousness that arises. And so then um, we can come to see and uh, realize that because of the sound, uh, the hearing of it arises. So, seeing that there is a cause, namely the sound, and this cause leads to an effect. The effect is that hearing consciousness arises and we actually can be aware of it. And in this case, the sound, this is a physical phenomenon. It's rupa. And the hearing consciousness, uh, hearing is a mental phenomenon. So, rupa, the sound, has been the cause, and nama, the hearing of it, uh, has been the effect. Or, another example. For example, when we touch a cup, then there is this touching sensation, maybe hard, maybe cold. And then as we uh, touch it, then we become aware of that touch. So the touching consciousness actually uh, arises. If we hadn't uh, touched the cup, then the touching consciousness would not have arisen. So again, the touching sensation has been the cause and that has been a physical uh, object, it has been rupa, and on account of that, the touching consciousness uh, has arisen. That's the effect.
another uh, example is, for example, in the walking meditation, when we observe the movement of the foot. Let's say we're observing the lifting movement of the foot. So this lifting movement of the foot is taking place. And uh, because this uh, happens, then uh, the consciousness being aware of the lifting uh, arises. And in this case, it's the body consciousness which is aware of that lifting movement. So the actual movement of the foot is the cause. That's a physical phenomenon. It's rupa. And then the body consciousness arising, being aware of that movement, that uh, is the effect. And that's a mental phenomenon. Or that's nama. Another way to see this relationship of cause and effect is when we uh, start to be aware of intentions. Like if there's the intention to go, then the body uh, goes or starts moving. If there was no intention to go, then the body would not move. So the intention to go, that's the cause. And then the actual movement of the body, that's the effect. Or when we become aware of the intention to lift the foot, then it's on account of this intention that the foot actually starts lifting. With no, with no intention to lift the foot, the foot does not lift. And so one comes to understand that the intention to lift the foot is the cause and then the actual lifting movement is the effect. And so starting to see this causal relationship of phenomena means that one has arrived at the second stage of insight knowledge. And this is the insight knowledge of cause and effect. And this is also uh, part of Lokya Panya, worldly uh, insight or understanding or wisdom. So these are these five mental faculties, namely Sada, faith, confidence, trust, virya, effort, energy, endurance, perseverance, and sati, mindfulness, awareness, samadhi, concentration, one-pointedness of mind, and panya insight, understanding, or wisdom. As I said, sati can never be too strong, but the other four mental faculties, they can either be too strong 
for two weeks. And so one has to be careful that these other mental faculties are well balanced. And sada, faith, confidence, must be balanced with panya, wisdom, or insight, understanding. If one is too strong or too weak, um, then it will be out of balance and the practice will not flow smoothly. And also, effort, virya, and samadhi, concentration, must be in balance. Because if effort is too strong, for example, then that leads to restlessness. If concentration is too strong and effort too weak, this leads to uh, a dullness of the mind, a sinking of the mind. And so it is basically the job of sati, mindfulness, to have these faculties well balanced, to have sada and panya, faith and wisdom well balanced, and to have virya and samadhi, effort and concentration well balanced. Sati is compared to a charioteer who holds the reins uh, of the horses. Like there are five horses in front of the chariot. Sati, one horse being in front. And then two pairs. Sada and Panya, Virya and Samadhi. And so um, the charioteer has to make sure that Sada and Panya and Virya and Samadhi are always well balanced because otherwise the chariot would either go to this side or to that side and end up in the ditch. So it's already more than an hour. (coughs) We must have a lot of um, endurance and patience (laughs) to listen to this talk. So let's end this talk here. May all of you be able to have well-balanced mental faculties and uh, become fully liberated. Uh,